Broadcasting from the business capital of the world, this is the Podcast Business News Network. Welcome back to the show. We are so excited to have our friend Bonnie Ring joining us and so excited that she's now inducted into the Hall of Fame. Bonnie Ring, yes, uh, hailing from, well, half uh, Moon Bay, California. She's a licensed psychologist, author, Episcopal priest, and reverend, and so much more. We are so excited to have you back here again as Woman of the Year. Congratulations. How are you feeling today? Well, I'm euphoric. <laughs> really? What are you up to? So let's see, California time. So it's morning for you right now. What's well, morning? And, okay. Um, and we've had we've we've had summer on the coast for the last week. Oh it, my goodness! So what's the weather like there? Bloom. And uh, so it's been really wonderful to see the sunshine and to enjoy the warmth, and it's not too hot. Oh, well, by the way, we got to reintroduce yourself and tell everyone who you are. Dr. Bonnie Ring, I could tell you that much. D-R-B-O-N-N-I-E-R-I-N-G.com. That's her website. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself before we begin. Well, I was thinking about this, and I, I think there have been kind of milestones in my life where they were turning points, um, much like uh, some of the books say, uh, when I was 14, my high school class went to a Roman Catholic convent, and I felt at home as soon as I knelt down on my knees. I didn't remember at that point that at seven or six, my nanny had taken me to church. Oh, wow. and, uh, but, you know, becoming, becoming a Christian at 14 meant I had to assert myself. I had to be who I wanted to be yeah. and, and not and not be turned away by the criticism or the non-belief of others. And the same thing was true of the civil rights movement. You know, um, I ended up working on the Lower East Side of New York as an 18-year-old um, after my first year of college. And I was so taken with the poverty and the discrimination and uh, gang life. Um, of the people living in the slums that I got interested in intergroup relations education. And um, when some of my friends were arrested in the civil rights movement run by SNCC, I went to Atlanta to work at the Episcopal Society for Cultural and Racial Unity and to participate in SNCC activities all summer. And it was life-changing. These kinds of things are life-changing. And I think that's one of the things that I I represent that um, learning to express myself, to free myself from the restraints and expectations of others, and to become all that I am able to be, that's been my, my, my way of life. Well, let me also commend you uh, here again, uh, you know, as a Hall of Famer being inducted here today. I want to know just for, you know, new listeners, I know I've got to meet you last time, but sure. a little bit about your background. Would you mind sharing a little bit about what sure. it is, what you do and why you started this career path and as a licensed psychologist, author and so much more. I uh, would love to hear more of that just to give everyone a background. I want to say that I've been very fortunate in my life. And, you know, therapists kind of ask you whether your life has been what you wanted or not what you wanted. And, of course, there are things I would change and there were things I didn't get that I did want. But I grew up in Manhattan, which is an unusual place to grow up, certainly today. 
Um, it's too expensive for most families with children. But in those days, in the 40s and 50s, it was a very exciting place to be because of the theater, the ballet and museums and politics. It was all very lively. And um, I was lucky. I was put in a class at the public school for intelligently gifted children. So I learned to express myself and to think out loud and to be um, assertive in a nice way. And um, I went off to college and then to graduate school. And in graduate school, black power was coined. And so I suddenly had to find a new career. So I studied all the methods that people can use to change themselves um, psychotherapy and counseling, um, group dynamics and sensitivity training and encounter groups. And um, I was, I, I got several jobs with the poverty program while I was in grad school in Los Angeles. And um, I finished my degree from Boston University by going to LA. And when I got to the point where I was writing my dissertation, in the midst of it, my husband had a chance to design a new counseling service for UC Santa Cruz. And he said, well, you know a lot more about counseling than I do. Would you help me with this? And I proposed a decentralized system, the first of its kind. It was community mental health at the college level. And we had a counselor in each of the separate colleges. And one day I was having coffee with the wife of the provost of Merrill College, which was the fourth college that had just opened. And he said, I need you to come work for me. I know you've helped design the counseling service, and I'd like to hire you as the first counselor. I hadn't really thought of myself as a therapist, but it was the job that was made for me. It allowed me to be involved in the training of residents assistance. It enabled me to be a consultant to the faculty about the dynamics in their classrooms. And it enabled me to see, see students. Literally, my my office was on the way to the dining room. So they all passed by. And I got to know the students often before they needed help. And when they needed help, um, of course, I was there for them for that. So um, that's how I became a therapist. I left Santa Cruz when I changed, left my marriage, and I went to UC Irvine and repeated the process of decentralizing the counseling service. I was the psychologist for the School of Biological Sciences, which had the highest admission rate and the highest attrition rate. And we turned that around by teaching study skills and um and here you are as a professional and also as an author. There's so much work that you have uh, a lot that you've accomplished. Uh, again, uh, let alone the completion of your doctorate in education, counseling, psychologist, and also you are the host of the first on air psychological call and radio program in the uh, Bay Area, right? And uh, could you talk a little bit about that and then going into priesthood? I mean, this talk is about, pretty fascinating. Talk about opportunities just being handed to you. Uh, I went to a local psychological meeting when I went into private practice in the late 70s. And one of the people there said to me, you know, you've probably never filled out an insurance form when you work for the Cal University of California. If you need help, call me and I'll go through it with you and, and lead you through it. So I did that. And he was very helpful. And the next day I got a call from him saying, I was on the phone 
for the um, Marriage and Family Association, and we got a call from KSF, KSFO Radio looking for an online psychologist, and I recommended you. I went, oh, wow. And within a few hours, I got a phone call saying, can you be on air tomorrow or the next day or the day after that? After two days of trial, they they signed a contract for a year, and it was just a wonderful experience of giving psychology away. We had a to- we had a topic every day. It went on for three hours of incoming calls, and people began talking to one another and helping each other, not just me. And so that's that's my psychological career. At the same time as I was on the radio, I reconnected with the Episcopal Church which I had been a part of as a teenager and young adult. And um, I, it just was the right thing at the right time. Um, I became very active as a lay person. I, I heard God say, I call you, and I went, hell no. I don't want to be a priest. I just want to be a person. And um, it went on and on. And finally, I said, okay. I got hit by a car and I thought God was just getting impatient with me. So I went to seminary at 46. And um, while I was at seminary, the first class I took in church history required us to, um, to write five meditations on saints from the first 500 years of the church. And I, without thinking, just said, is it okay if I choose all women? And the young professor from Princeton said, well, sure, Bonnie, but I'm not sure you'll find five that qualify. Oh, wow. Sexism of the early 80s. So I found 31 women who were saints in the first 500 years. And I started doing retreats on the women who knew Jesus. And eventually, after 25 years of doing retreats, I decided to write a book about it so that people could do it on their own. And that is called Women Who Knew Jesus. And it's quite quite well received. Um, I've also written a children's book for, on Mary Magdalene to inspire kids to make a friend of Jesus the way he would like to be a friend of theirs. So I've done a, a whole lot, lot of things, but I've got to work as a consultant for AT&T during divestiture of the baby bells made changes in the way in which they treated their own employees and the way they reached out to people in the world. So it's been a wonderful, um, complicated, and unending career. I think that young people today have been too isolated for too many years. And the iPhone or its equivalent is not a solution to building meaningful relationships. I think that what we need to do is encourage people to be their full selves, to say what they think, to do what they want, and to make this country the kind of country where everyone is accepted. I think that uh, I've been very lucky, been very fortunate. I've said yes at the right times because I was given the right opportunities. And that's harder to do today. The world is much bigger and the options are much smaller. But I think that you can become who you want to be. When I um, 
when I was um, in college, it was very essentialistic. I went to Vassar to start with, and it was the most inappropriate place for me because it was all based on how you did on exams and how you did um, in papers. And I hadn't any experience writing exams or writing papers. So eventually I had a, I met a faculty member who said, why are you suffering? Why don't you leave and take a leave of absence and figure out what you really want? And I learned by working at a bride's magazine that uh, everything I really wanted to do as an adult, I had to have a college degree. So I found a place where I could be um, really majoring in student government and civil rights and sociology by title. It allowed me to um, discover what was important to me. I got to take the first course that was ever offered at a college on the peoples of Africa to discover just how wide varied the different tribes were from one another and the different countries subsequently became. The work at Brides Magazine was a similar experience to working. We had to do community service at the Dalton schools where I went to high school, which is a wonderful school still is. And um, when I when I, I took my first job for community service as co-chair of the Thanksgiving dance to support um, cerebral palsy, and we had a fabulous turnout. And my advisor said that she saw a side of me that she had never seen, which was to be organized and be a good administrator. And I think I've used those skills ever since. On the radio, we had a topic every day. So I would think a little bit about the topic and then ask questions and invite people to respond. Uh, I would love to have a radio show again. That would be a two-way street. This is this is one way and it's a little um, daunting because I'm not prompted with questions or um, answers that would make me think. Um, but I think if I were to say one set of words that would describe my life, I would say breaking the mold. I'm not the typical upper middle class um, woman. I'm now 83. I've had a wonderful life. And I have an aunt that's still 101 years old. So I don't think I'm going to leave this world very soon. And I have no idea what's coming next. Jill, if you're there, please talk to me. I think Jill disappeared on me. And this makes me question whether anybody's ever going to hear this. Um, but I will keep going. When I was at graduate school, women were very rare in graduate school. I started in 1962. That's before probably every one of you were born. And um, when I... When I finished my first year, my parents' attitude was, oh, no, girls don't get doctorates. I said, but in today's world, if a woman doesn't have a doctorate, she doesn't have an identity that's worth anything. And so I had to put myself through graduate school by teaching. And I, that's how I got into the field of teaching. I was teaching human relations in the College of Business. Three girls in the class, 254, they were jocks. They didn't know about human relations and organizational behavior. 
they thought they would just do what their fathers did. And we had a wonderful time unraveling their expectations and putting them into experiences where they had to evaluate each other as if they were the boss and they had to um, create things and compete. It was a very, very exciting, innovative program. And it fit in with the kind of doctoral program I was in, which was to uh, use all the methods for adults that enable them to become themselves and develop as human beings and as in relationships. So I learned about different ways adults learn compared to children. You can't teach adults like children. You have to recognize their talents and their abilities. I learned about counseling and group dynamics, and I've used that in my practice uh, and in my work forever since then. Uh, As a priest, I've had a very unusual priesthood. I've only been an an assistant in a parish, an unpaid assistant in a parish. Um, I started the priesthood in 1989, 1991, excuse me. And there were very few women priests at that time. Maybe 10 years of priesthood had already elapsed. And um, so I wasn't hireable in the ways that the men were. But I I developed a reputation on the retreats of women who knew Jesus, and I gave women a role model that they never saw in the in the male disciples and apostles. The the women were uh, committed to Jesus. They understood his teachings. They tried to live the way he preached. Um, They were kind and caring and healing uh, figures in their communities. And they were very instrumental in developing the first house churches. Um, my f- first women that I talked about was, were Mary and Martha, the sisters where one did everything that needed to be done in terms of chores, and the other who sat and listened to Jesus and learned from him. And that was the contrast that was given in the earliest days of the church. And then I included Mary Magdalene who um, was such a companion and devotee to Jesus, who understood what he wanted to accomplish and carried on his ministry after his death. And then I included the story of the hemorrhaging woman, a woman who for 12 years had been unable to go outside because of the purity codes that wouldn't allow her to interact with others for fear of contaminating them. And... um, When she heard that Jesus was in town, she heard that he had healed Peter's mother-in-law. She said, if he'd healed one woman, maybe he'll heal me. And although she wasn't supposed to go out in public, she went to where he was and she crawled on the ground so no one would notice her so she could touch the hem of his garment. And as soon as she touched the hem of his garment, he said, who touched me? He could feel the power go out of him. And she very with fright said, it was me. And he said, daughter of Israel, your faith has made you well. And she was welcomed for the first time in her community. So these were all very different women. Oh, the last one was Pilate's wife. Most people haven't ever read this story, but it's in the Gospels. And she had a dream the night 
that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And she was so disturbed by the dream that she sent a message to her husband, Pilate, not to do harm to this man. And unfortunately, the people who kept asking for his crucifixion and asking for the freedom of a a convict instead. And so um, we, we get a taste of just how the world existed in the Roman era, where the power was all in the rulers and not in the people. I'm for power in the people. I'm for using your vote or as as often and as um, conscientiously as you possibly can. We're moving into another election cycle, and I think this is going to be a wild one because there are people who oppose to all the candidates and very few people who like the alternatives. As a clergywoman, um, I have been very popular among uh, women around the world. I've been to India to teach about the women who knew Jesus as well as throughout the United States. And I think when you give examples to people of women who stood up for what they believe, there's a wonderful story that I was told again a few weeks ago in church about a, a woman who was either Syrophoenician or Canaanite. She was described differently in two different Gospels. But she heard that Jesus was a healer, and she had a daughter who was taken by the demon spirits, and she was very worried about her. And so she went to where she heard that Jesus was, and he wanted quiet. He didn't want to interact with people. And so he ignored her, and she kept shouting at him. And the disciples said, you know, either give her what he wants or send her away. And he said to her, I'm here for the house of Israel, for no one else. And you can't give food to uh, to other children before the children of Israel have eaten. And she said to him, well, even the, even the dogs um take the crumbs from under the dining table. And he was so impressed with her her attitude and her spark that he said, go home, your daughter is well. And sure enough, her daughter was well. He hadn't even seen her. So we have three examples. We have examples where the mother of Peter, mother-in-law of Peter, he touched her hand and helped her stand up when she was so sick in bed that she couldn't move. And then we had the hemorrhaging woman who touched the bottom of his garment, the hem of his garment, and was healed. And then we had this story of this um, Syrophoenician Canaanite woman who um, yelled at him, acted unbecoming to a woman. And he was so taken that he changed his ministry from being exclusive to the Jews to being to all people to bring all people to God and to the house of prayer of God. Bonnie Ring, thank you for your time today. Have a fantastic day. And to all of our listeners, stay tuned. We'll have more from our Hall of Fame inductee next week. Broadcasting from the business capital of the world, this is the Podcast Business News Network.
Adopt US Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. Your daughter just had her first breakup. Do you A, put yourself in her shoes? How could he do this to you? And for Sheila, she, she has split ends. B, console her. Oh, sweetie, this is going to happen a lot. Four, maybe five more times before you get married. C, take charge. Got to get this all straightened out. Keep a little talking to, man to man, mano a mano. Hey, Steve. It's now a good time? No? Okay, no problem. Bye. Or D, help her find a new boyfriend. I know a great place to meet boys. The internet. Nice, single boys. Never mind. How about some ice cream? As a parent, there are no perfect answers. But you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit adoptuskids.org. A public service announcement from the US Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids and the Ad Council.